Some people relax by curling up with a good book or putting on their favorite movie and lying on the couch. Me? Nah, I do podcasts. This is Clinical Pearls. Yesterday in clinic, I saw a 23-year-old Nola Gravid female who had been told, based on a previous MRI, that she had a uterine malformation, specifically a septate uterus, and that she needed surgical correction before attempting pregnancy. She came for a second opinion because she wasn't even desiring pregnancy at this point, but she was concerned about her potential fertility future. Did she need surgery without even having a pregnancy in the past? Well, in this podcast, we're going to review why it's been difficult to sort out some of these details regarding congenital uterine anomalies, and we'll provide a quick review of current management, diagnosis, and reproductive implications. Congenital uterine anomalies are deviations from normal anatomy resulting from embryological maldevelopment of the Malurian ducts. While most anomalies are asymptomatic and are associated with normal reproductive outcomes, some may be associated with some adverse events. Detection of these anomalies has been increasing with the advent of three-dimensional ultrasound, which provides visible evidence of the internal and the external contours of the uterus and makes the assessment of uterine morphology much more reproducible and accessible. And we'll talk about diagnosis in just a little bit in this podcast. These anomalies are not uncommon. A recent meta-analysis estimated the overall prevalence of these anomalies to be about 5.5% in an unselected population, 8% in infertile women, and up to 13% in those with a history of miscarriage, and 24% in those with miscarriage and infertility. It is evident that clinicians will be regularly required to counsel women with these malformations. So it's important to give this information now and do this review. And that's the whole reason we're doing this podcast. However, these anomalies will present very differently because there's a huge range of clinical presentation from asymptomatic to very complex reproductive pathology and loss. Here are the reasons why it's been challenging to counsel and care for these women that have been diagnosed with a congenital urine anomaly. First, there's been different classifications in the literature over the past few decades, but we're going to focus on the American Society of Reproductive Medicine's one, even though it's not ideal and there's criticism for it. We'll also talk about the European classification system, which, yeah, you guessed it, is also being criticized. There's also been several diagnostic modalities that have been used to describe these with various specificities in their results. It's also hard to determine the impact of these congenital anomalies because even though recent meta-analyses have been published, they've had very heterogeneous existing studies that go into those kind of reviews. And lastly, there's just been no single randomized clinical trial that addresses the question of surgical management of these anomalies, specifically the resection of the uterine septum, which is the most amendable and the most reported for surgical repair. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about the embryology of the female reproductive tract because I know we all forgot about that from embryology in medical school, but it really does come to life when we're talking about these congenital anomalies. So let's do that next. 
the female reproductive tract differentiates from two Malurian ducts, which develop within the first six weeks of fetal life. In females, the absence of anti-Malurian hormone, or AMH, allows the Malurian ducts to fuse caudally to become the uterus and the upper third of the vagina, and the unfused upper segments become the fallopian tubes. The intervening septum of the uterus, which is developed from the fusion of the upper portions of the two Malurian components, subsequently undergoes resorption or canalization to become a single uterine cavity. The lower tip of the fused Malurian ducts makes contact with the urogenital sinus to form the vaginal plate. This then canalizes to form the vagina with the upper portion derived from Malurian duct and the lower portion derived from the urogenital sinus. Now, there are three phases of Malurian duct development and fault. At these three phases can result in any one of the congenital anomalies. The first place where a defect can take root and manifest is with organogenesis itself. There can be a defect in the formation of one or both Malurian ducts. This can lead to hypoplasia of the internal structures, like a unicornuate uterus, or agenesis overall, in other words, a complete absence of the uterus. These are defects of organogenesis. The second place where defects can arise is with fusion of these Malurian ducts. Now, this can happen either as horizontal defects or vertical defects. Remember, we're talking about fusion of these Malurian ducts either together or towards the urogenital sinus. With horizontal fusion defects, these are also called unification defects. The lower segments of the paired Malurian ducts usually fuse to form the uterus, the cervix, and the upper vagina. Defects, depending on the degree, lead to partial fusion or unification. So this is where you get the bicornuate uterus, or you can get complete fusion or a complete unification defect and lead to a duplication like a uterine didelphus. So that is a defect in horizontal fusion. But there's also defects in vertical fusion. This is between the descending Malurian duct and the ascending urogenital sinus to form the vaginal canal. These vertical fusion defects usually present as an imperforate hymen or a transverse vaginal septum. Okay, so remember guys, we're talking about the three places where these defects can arise. We talked about organogenesis, we talked about horizontal or vertical fusion defects, and then the last has to do with septal resorption or canalization of the horizontally fused Malurian ducts. This leads to defects of the uterine cavity. So failure of resorption or canalization of that septal barrier leads to various degrees of complete septate uterus, a partial septate uterus, or the mild form, which is an arcuate uterus. The first classification systems for these abnormalities can be traced back to the mid-19th century with authors like von Rokinatsky from where we get the Rokinatsky syndrome of abnormalities. Then, in 1979, the then American Fertility Society, which is now known as the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, published their own criteria. And it's been this scheme that's been the most widely adopted and used for decades. 
However, of course, there's criticism like with everything else in life. So the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology, or the ESHRE, developed its own set of guidelines and its own set of classification scheme back between 2011 and 2013. This sought to address issues that weren't well represented in the ASRM scheme. For example, the European Society classification also took into account vaginal abnormalities that were not just solely based on uterine malformations. Of course, as I've mentioned before, nothing's free of criticism. Congenital uterine malformation experts have criticized the European classification as overestimating and the ASRM as underestimating the presence of a septate uterus. So the take-home message is use either the European criteria or the ASRM and be consistent. In the ASRM classification scheme, Category 1 are the hypoplastic or the uterine agenesis family of findings. Category 2 is a unicornuate uterus, either with or without a communicating horn. Category 3 is uterine didelphus. Category 4 is the bicornuate uterus, which is either partial or complete. Category 5 is the septate uterus, which is either partial or complete. And then Category 6 is the arcuate uterus. Again, some would consider that a variant of normal. The ASRM does make a special classification for a finding that's just not very common anymore, but that was Category 7, which was the uterine abnormalities associated with DES drug exposure. All right, family, next we're going to cover the diagnosis, the workup of these abnormalities, and we're going to leave reproductive outcomes based on these anomalies for the next podcast. But let's come back and talk about diagnoses. Accurate diagnosis of the internal and external contours of the uterus is crucial in making the diagnosis and classifying these anomalies correctly. Previously, the gold standard was a combination of laparoscopy to look at the outside of the uterus and hysteroscopy to thoroughly evaluate the cavity. But imaging techniques like ultrasound, specifically 3D ultrasound, the use of HSG and MRI have come a long way and they're preferred now, obviously, because they are also less invasive. When conventional 2D imaging suspects an anomaly, then a 3D ultrasound should be triggered. Conventional 2D vaginal ultrasound is minimally invasive and is the easiest to perform, but it can miss some subtle defects, but it's good for an overall screen. Scanning in the second half of the menstrual cycle, the secretory phase, provides more accurate visualization of the endometrium and is therefore appropriate to evaluate the uterine cavity better because it just gives you better resolution. Visualization of two endometrial cavities on a transverse plane is indicative of a congenital anomaly. 3D ultrasound, through its unique feature of providing the additional viewing of coronal planes of the uterus, can help visualize both the external serosal surface and the internal uterine cavity. And so it helps you really make these subtle differences much more visible using 3D ultrasound. Now, again, 2D is fine as a screen, and it can point you to a general direction, but 3D just has much more sensitivity and specificity. 
All right, so here's a clinical pearl. Three-dimensional transvaginal ultrasound is now considered the gold standard for the assessment of these congenital uterine abnormalities because it's less invasive and it can classify the variant types of uterine abnormalities correctly. Criteria for the classification of these uterine abnormalities can be found in published literature and in the American College of Radiology. Now, what about an MRI? Now, an MRI of the pelvis is sensitive and specific for diagnosing these congenital uterine abnormalities. They help in delineating the endometrium, and they can detect uterine horns. Plus, MRI can also help define any aberrant gonadal location. And, of course, you get a peek at the renal anatomy that cannot be ignored in this either. Remember that the genitourinary system develops together. It's also less invasive than that combined laparoscopy and hysteroscopy, but MRI may not be feasible for some patients based on costs or availability. So remember, while MRI is not routinely recommended in all women with a suspected congenital uterine abnormality, it can be useful for those who have a suspicion based on routine ultrasound or even when it's not clear on a 3D ultrasound, again, which is unlikely but possible, and in those who have suspected complex abnormalities or in those who have a suspicion of a concomitant renal abnormality, then an MRI is advised. Okay, I have to say this because this makes me just really happy. I got a Facebook message from one of our listener family members who just said, you know, I've been listening from the beginning and I love your podcast. And that just made my whole day. I received that message yesterday. You know, I got to be honest, it's a lot of work doing these things. But getting messages like that makes it all worth it. So guys, we're thankful for you. We're all on this journey of trying to take care of our patients the best way that we can. And in this episode, we've just started our discussion of congenital uterine abnormalities. In part two, we're going to talk about the reproductive outcomes based on these types of abnormalities. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.